0: Your skirt.
1: When you get it? A bit. Yeah. It will be a weapon. Will be the kid in the world. How do I prove to the world that I'm here and that I'm a man,
0: that
2: I'm not a little kid anymore? And
1: I'll only be once. In this lifetime, you're going have to prove
2: nothing to nobody except yourself. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. measure.
3: measure. You are now listening to Right Ways Radio, hosted by...
0: Journeymen, amplifying
3: the voices of youth development and modern rites of passage. Hello and welcome to Right Ways Radio, hosted by Journeymen. Today we have a special episode as we welcome several guests to the uh, program all at once. We have two of our mentors joining us. We have Orion Zick. Welcome, Orion.
1: Very happy to be here.
3: We also have uh, Patrick Phelan. Welcome, Pat. Hey, everyone. And we have uh, one of our young apprentices, Max Zuber. So welcome, Max. Thanks, Nikki And uh, we at Journeymen are very honored to welcome author and psychologist Michael Reichert to our program. Um, Michael joins us from the East Coast and is the author of an upcoming book, How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. Thank you, Michael, for joining us. It's truly an honor to have you.
0: Glad to be here, guys.
3: Um, Michael, for our audience, I'm wondering if you could uh, offer us a glimpse into your work. Uh, what, it is that, what is it that you do? And uh, if you can roll into it as well, uh, what inspired you to write this book?
0: Um, it's, you know, it's not an easy question for me to answer, uh, Nikki, because I've been essentially doing this work for close to 40 years now, um, being a young male counselor. Uh, I found that right from the get go, um, uh, people thought that it would be a great idea for the boys that were in their, in their, that, that were having trouble in their organizations, whether it was the juvenile justice organization or the schools I worked in, it would be great for them to talk to another male. So I found myself specializing uh, with boys before I was really intentionally doing so. Um, But that is what happened. And uh, then, uh, uh, you know, I sort of accumulated a body of perspective and experience from that work. And then I had uh, first one son and then a second son and realized that I was not only specializing with boys in my work, but I was I was taking a deep dive into boyhood from the perspective of being a parent and somebody that uh, uh, was bound and determined uh not to merely replicate the experience uh the omissions and commissions that had occurred in my boyhood i wanted to do it right for my sons and that uh that required a lot of things including uh reading and uh taking public stands so that was the, how the journey began um, in terms of the book so the book summarizes all of that body of experience, but uh, there's a very particular way that the book grew out of an experience as a researcher, and maybe I can tell you that story, and uh, that can that can that can help us frame a set of issues that we can talk about more fully.
3: Yeah, we'd love to hear that story.
0: Um, so I, you know, I'm a qualitative researcher, and I run a, a research center. Based at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, uh, that's called the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives. And um, I developed a, 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 uh, uh, an expertise in listening to boys using different qualitative research methods uh, well enough that uh, an organization uh, International Organization of Boys Schools asked me to conduct a study. A global study of what was actually working in boys' education. There was a whole lot of concern about uh, boys not succeeding educationally. Boys falling behind was the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the the name of the crisis. Peg Tire wrote a book called "The Trouble with Boys" that was all about the chronic underachievement of boys and the difficulty to engage boys in learning. And uh, this organization of boys' schools. Uh, uh, asked me to conduct the study because everyone believed that, you know, alongside the boys that were not succeeding, there are always boys that dig in and, and do very, very well in schools and that perhaps we could learn something from the stories of success. So I did a first study back uh, 2008, 2010, 18 schools in six different countries about fifteen hundred boys, aged twelve to eighteen, and a thousand of their teachers, and we asked a really simple question: we asked them to tell us what was working. And uh, uh, we got back their responses to our online survey. Did a bunch of focus groups, in-person focus groups in different countries, and essentially, uh, what the what the uh, uh, data told us was that there were three general themes. Uh, that described the stories of success. The first theme was a theme that we named as uh, eliciting. And it really was the story of attentive teachers monitoring uh, how well the lessons they were pitching to their students actually worked, modifying those lessons uh, so that more reliably they engaged their students. That process of reciprocal communication between teacher and student uh, actually resulted in lessons that we said were elicited from the teachers by the boys. The attentive teachers paying attention, wanted to get things right, and they wound up being shaped uh, to produce lessons that more reliably worked. The second theme was the theme of what we call transitivity. And that theme was to describe the qualities in the lessons that were elicited from the teachers by the boys. And uh, basically what we found was that the teachers recognized that when they stood in front of a class of boys, a classroom of boys, they couldn't automatically assume that they had the boys' full attention. They had to first capture boys' attention and then carry it to the point of the lesson, thus the term transitivity. So, you know, chemistry teachers created explosions in classes and English teachers had boys uh, do role plays, you know, where they pretended that they were uh, the uh, uh, in a longboat rowing out to uh, harpoon Moby Dick. Um, You know, (laughs) competitions and games and all kinds of things that first captured attention and carried it to the point of the lesson. That was the second uh, overarching theme. Those themes came from both the boys and the teachers. Lots of convergence between what the boys and the teachers said worked. The third theme, though, came almost exclusively from the boys themselves. It was not named by the teachers. And that was a remarkable uh, divergence in a pattern of convergence. Um, and that theme uh, was this: that we heard, uh, we we specifically in the survey said, please don't name names or give away any kind of identifying details about teachers you might talk about. Despite that, the boys, when they talked about the lessons that worked, instead of talking as teachers did about the technical craft of the lesson and what the you know what the learning goal was, they talked in great detail, warm, vivid detail about the personality of the teachers. And they described teachers that were were uplifting, teachers that had changed their lives, teachers that had all kinds of idiosyncrasies, they named the idiosyncrasies. And we recognized that in both um, ignoring our instructions not to name the teachers or give away any identifying characteristics, but in the quality of the narratives that they provided to us, Boys were essentially describing themselves as relational learners, mm. and when they when we when they talked about the lessons that did not work, we asked a second question in this survey um, about lessons that did not work. What the boys described were uh, violations of this core assumption that teachers would be available to them for relationship. Mm. So, both in terms of the positive qualities and the negative qualities, what we realized were, was that boys were relational learners, and um, the fact that 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 um, that essential feature of how boys learn was not named by teachers, um, veteran teachers, teachers that you know specialized in boys. Number one, and number two, my uh, partner and I. Between us had over 50 years of working with boys in schools at that point, and we were surprised. Moreover, uh, what we realized from that uh, uh, discrepancy and from our uh, surprise at that finding was that uh, we were all laboring under a stereotype, a confusing stereotype of boys as a-relational, non-relational. We all, you know, we believed uh, that, that the relationship was not the important thing for boys. It was more about making the lesson boy friendly or this or that. And the truth really was that absent a relationship, a boy is much less likely to part to engage with a teacher in learning. Probably more willing than girls, I think, to check out, to drift away, to underperform or worse, become disruptive? Um, so, you know, we found this thing under our nose. We should have known it was true, but, but we didn't know it was true. And these teachers who were veterans of boys education also didn't know how to talk about it very well, even to name it. And we realized that uh, uh, the true nature of boys as highly relationally attuned and sensitive and dependent that this was a story that actually had broader implications. It certainly certainly has had lots of implications for how people think about uh, uh, working with boys in educational and coaching contexts. And that's been work I've done for the last uh, you know six years or so. Um, I ended up doing a second study that looked into the very, very specific dimensions of relationships that work and relationships that don't work and what to do when a relationship between a teacher or a mentor or a coach and a boy breaks down, how to think about that. Um, That's been the work I've done for the last, uh, you know, last while. Um, But it also, as a psychologist, someone in clinical practice, father of boys, I realized it had much broader implications, that it really uh, – went to the very, in my mind, the heart of the problem with the way that we've designed boyhood and um, how we've managed boyhood for centuries, I think, and uh, that we've got it all wrong, basically. And to uh, think about a boyhood that is built around the boy's fundamental need for connections, in order to uh, see himself clearly, in order to manage his emotions, in order to uh, solve problems, in order to believe in himself, I mean, I could go on and on, in order to absorb moral lessons or work through shortcomings that he experiences in himself, you know, all, in all of these ways, uh, uh, the relational context is critically important, and yet we haven't really prioritized that. In how we have done boyhood in fact we've we've valorized the, the notion or the, the you know the image of the boy as sort of a solitary individual in the group I did today with the boys and they talked about their relationships with their mothers they named that conflict that lurks under the surface for every adolescent boy in terms of how he relates to his mother and that conflict is that at a certain point doesn't a boy have to simply turn away from his mother and, and go be a man by himself, sort of the lone ranger. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the idea that that, that myth or that mistaken archetype still dominates how boys think about themselves, not to mention how the adults who are in charge of boyhood, you know, manage boyhood for them. That idea, I think, uh, was really the, the animating, uh, uh, force behind my undertaking this book.
3: Thank you, Michael. I, I feel particularly struck by a couple of words you use, um, which is that we perhaps unconsciously, but certainly do, uh, design and manage boyhood. Um, and those words I think stuck out to me because, um, I feel like a lot of the, um, the common rhetoric around masculinity and and boyhood and, and what might be expected uh, for boys is uh, simply based in those, in those stereotypes and based in those myths. Um, And I think it's just a really important assertion that, you know, we adults, we are responsible for, for the boyhood that uh, we facilitate for, for youth in our circle and in our lives and in our greater culture. Um, And, you know, with that, there's kind of another question that's popping up for me, which is, in your experience as a father, as a as a researcher, as someone who's been engaged in this work for so long, what would you say are the most uh, glaringly um, dangerous myths that we currently still hold uh, in the in the general society about boys and boyhood? Uh, what's certainly not true and and having a, a negative impact on boys today?
2: Hmm.
0: Boy, it's a um, you know it 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 it, it's really an extrapolation in my mind from that core myth that uh, you know that a real man, a real boy, uh, uh, is an independent individual uh, who thinks for himself and goes it alone, doesn't really need anybody, uh, doesn't feel fear but triumphs over his emotions by, you know, hard thought and and firm will. Um, And that's just simply not how we are constructed as human minds. We, you know, as creatures, human beings, we have evolved in certain ways and are hardwired in certain ways as a result of how we've evolved. And one of those features is that we are are incredibly um, uh, emotionally, perceptive and, res- and, and responsive to the relationships that we are part of. Um, you know, the relationship uh, context, the relational context was uh, developmentally uh, um, uh, critical for how we, for example, form uh, what psychologists call uh, working models in an attachment process. Uh, those working models become the template for how we think about closeness and intimacy and sharing and security and warmth. And if our working models result from uh, attachment processes that have been disrupted in one way or another, and unfortunately for many males, they are disrupted, um, that means that boys approach uh, a forming other intimate relationships down the road with some degree of hurt or trepidation or, um, insecurity. And, you know, they respond to those negative emotions in different ways, consciously and unconsciously. Uh, it, it, it just really complicates the, um, business of, uh, forming close intimate relationships that can be enduring and successful features of adult uh, uh, manhood. So in terms of myths, I think it originates with this central idea that, uh, you know, there's some exception to the human design that applies to males or some biological difference that distinguishes us from uh, you know, females, um, in this way. And it's just simply not true. And, uh, and yet what I saw in the, in the group that I met with today was it's still, uh, you know, that, that mythology just hangs over boys and influences how they relate to their own hearts, how they relate to each other, how they relate to their work in the world, how they relate to their virtue and how they relate to, uh, their families and to their other, 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 uh, close friends and and partners. There's other myths, you know, there's the myth, uh, Michael Thompson and Dan Kinlan wrote the book Raising Cain. And they talk about, they don't talk about myths. They talk about archetypes. And one of the archetypes that they talk about is the feral boy, the boy who's kind of wild by nature and, and can't really ever be kind of tamed or domesticated except that, uh, you know, at at, at peril. And, uh, um, you know, that, that, that we males are most at home, uh, being kind of, uh, uh, free to, um, howl at the moon. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I think every human being likes being free and likes being carefree and, and, you know, getting our yaya's out. But I, you know, I don't think that, uh, that notion of the feral boy has served boys very well, uh, particularly in the area of sexuality. I think that there's still this idea, you know, that males are predators at na- by nature, driven by our hormones and our need to procreate or whatever it might be, you know, our, our most feral instincts. And, uh, you know, the truth of it is that uh, in research about, for example, hooking up, we find that 62% of males in one study uh, experienced regret after hooking up uh, only on a few percentage points different than females. And, uh, you know, when we explored, when the researchers explored the nature of the regrets, they really were about wishing that, that uh, the sex hadn't been cheap, but had been meaningful and it would lead to a, you know, a more meaningful connection. So just, a, you know, I think that's another example of a myth that uh, that's out there. You know the myth that boys or men are not particularly uh, well suited to classroom learning, that uh, or that we're not good at receiving instruction from female teachers, uh, on and on.
1: Um, You know, Michael, this is Patrick. Uh, You make such a good point that these myths are so ingrained into um, our society and our culture, and they're sort of always looming over these. Boys, as they grow up, they're unavoidable. Um, they'll hear about various myths through their um, other friends who are boys or through TV and media, um, you know. And do you have any thoughts on how uh, to teach or show a boy that they can snap out of these myths and empower them to um, to not abide by them or? Um, to set their, to, to find their own way?
0: Yeah, good question, Patrick. You know, I want to say two things. First, um, you know, to your question about how boys learn these myths, uh, it's really important, I think, for all of us to appreciate that they they hang in the air we breathe, practically. They're so ubiquitous. Uh in my book, I, I report on a research study that uh, Judy Chu, who's a Stanford psychologist, ro- uh, conducted. She embedded herself with a group of four to six-year-old boys. She She went to their classroom and basically went back once a week for two years, observing them, interacting with them, talking with them for two years. And what she what she discovered was that at the outset, at four years old, I think that was the entry point for that school, so as they came into school, the boys were, as she put it, authentic. They were present. They were direct. They were relationally skilled. Uh, over the course of the next two years, though, they absorbed strong ideas uh, from teachers, from their parents, from other boys, from girls, from TV, from media, about what a boy is supposed to be like, and and they changed. They 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 traveled, as she put it, from presence to pretense uh, via posturing. They learned to act like like they thought a boy was supposed to act. So they started, uh, uh, you know not playing with girls they started playing you know more 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 boy traditional games they started dressing differently talking differently walking differently acting differently so my point is that that um, in terms of where these messages come from they're everywhere and boys are picking them up as early as age four um, so that being true how do we, uh, you know, how do we expect boys to step out of that, uh, that, that conditioning? And this is where I've got really hopeful news. And I'll, I'll reference that group of uh, boys that uh, I meet with at this high school. Um, you know, so there's this idea that boys uh, don't, and in fact, it's it's an idea that is propagated virtually everywhere, including by psychologists writing books. I was just reading about a book that just came out. Uh, And uh, in that book, the author talks about how, you know, boys don't really uh, have an easy time talking about their feelings. They need to do action reflection, you know, a good time to talk to a boy, for example, is when he's driving a car or tossing a ball or, you know, playing a game, video game or something. And I have to tell you that, um, uh, you know, I think all of us uh, wonder about that all the time, not just about boys, but about ourselves as men. You know, are we just wired differently? We just don't have the same brains or the same access to feelings. Has it been somehow bred out of us or stamped out of us by experience, whatever. And uh, what I found with this group of boys simply is if you build it, they will come. If you meet with boys, you model something yourself as a male and you uh, invite them essentially to be real with each other, to step out from behind the masks of masculinity. They do it, and they do it profoundly. Um, I do in the, in the class, I, I, you know, share on a topic. I have the boys talk to each other in dyads. And then I do what we call a demonstration. And it's really just a chance for everybody in the room to get behind one guy. And that guy gets a turn talking in front of 40 people or 50 people. About whatever he wants to, and uh one guy I'll just give you some examples one guy uh this year uh decided to, to tell to tell this story about his life at home with a brother who became uh, chemically dependent and essentially terrorized his family and what this boy luke uh what he what he what he what he showed as he was talking about this was a depth of caring for everybody in his family, but particularly for his brother. And as he began talking about how, how fearful he became that his brother was going to hurt himself, was going to not survive, he began to cry and he cried hard. He sobbed in front of these boys. And he had never shared this story before, but he felt safe enough. He felt held up by these brothers of his who were meeting with him in this common purpose, you know, of helping helping each other get things off their chest. And for me, it was such a such an instruction in how, you know, I didn't have to do any teaching with that boy about how to, how to be real or how to, how to talk about his emotions. He did it thoroughly and naturally once we created an environment where it was possible to do. And by and large, that's been my experience. Guys have talked, you know, the boys have talked about all kinds of things. We'll we'll do a class on pornography use and they'll be incredibly honest to me, you know, a different generation, embarrassingly honest. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They'll talk about relationships with girls. They'll talk about relationships with each other and being bullied. And uh, you know, they just they're able to be vulnerable because we've created conditions in that room that basically naturalize who they really are. And, you know, it's sort of a you scratch my back, I scratch yours deal where, you know, everybody's in there. It's a voluntary program. They're there because they want the chance to uh, download some of the stress and anxiety and hurts that they're carrying. So in terms of how to overcome those, those myths and stereotypes, I guess what I would say is what we have going for us is, is boys' human natures basically, if we make it possible, they'll show up.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. The, um, I guess that, that theme of safety that was mentioned earlier comes up for me too, which is I don't feel like boys have a safe space to be, you know, to exist outside of the man box as it's called, you know, in their everyday lives. And, as I heard you describe, you know, they have a safe container to to be authentic, to be you know a full expression of themselves. And um, a lot of what we aim to do at Journeyman and in the mentoring circles and such is very similar. Um, and it's actually a huge relief, I think, for me and and a lot of other adults, when we realize that like it's not really a curriculum. Like we don't like we don't have to teach the details of how to do these things. But rather, as you've alluded to, it's, it's very much a, a human innate quality that these are things that we um, we are compelled to do naturally when when we're given uh, when we're given the right conditions to do so. Uh, and I think it is a huge relief for many of us who, you know, who might work in education or, or be parents ourselves um, to trust that we don't have to hand these down as lesson plans and learning goals, but they're actually embedded.
0: Yeah, in fact, I would I liked your word choice there, compelled. Because I, I, you know, as a psychologist in a clinical practice for many, many years, I've, I've worked with uh, boys and young men uh, who are, are in trouble, all kinds of trouble, you know. Um, I've worked in, in uh, lots of different settings, clinical settings, including juvenile justice settings and psychiatric hospital settings and drug and alcohol treatment settings, and you know, I've seen what happens basically when uh, a boy gets blocked or stuck, doesn't have access to the kind of safe opportunities to show himself, to work through emotional tensions and hurts, and gets so backed up that he begins to act out or desperately seek relief. And uh, you know, the the I say that uh, one of the Inconvenient truths about the boyhood we created, we have created and managed, uh, are these routine casualties, these losses that extend as far as boys' lives. You know, we have a lot of casualties that are quite profound uh, among the population of males, young males, and uh, you know, it's it's tragic uh, the consequences of of not providing adequate uh, opportunity and resource for boys to be themselves um what happens you know if 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 we get in the way of the force of human nature um that way that we are all as human beings compelled to uh handle ourselves and our lives in certain ways that are hardwired in our natures if we get in the way of that i think there's hell to pay
3: Absolutely. I mean, you you named them as casualties, and and I felt us focusing on perhaps the uh, the cost and the the loss experienced at the individual level. Uh, But it's I think it's very apparent for pretty much anyone with open eyes today to see the widespread um, casualties associated with some of these you know some of these um, contexts around masculinity and, and how to be a boy and how to be a man. Um, and if we're willing to transition about into the, into the cultural context for a moment, um, I know you've been engaged in this work for so long and I'm wondering like how it feels for you now that there is, seems to be so much attention on masculinity uh, thanks to the Me Too movement and Time's Up and so much of the growing, I think, awareness around the need to address uh Need to address how we raise boys and how we uh, instill the man box on on males of all ages, um, but I'm I'm just curious. Like, I guess why why is is it happening now? What's going on in our culture, um, and and why is there this sudden spike in awareness?
0: Yeah, well, you know, you've named some of the forces behind it for sure. I think that the uh, you know the simple fact that the um, the landscape uh, of gender relations has been um, historically altered by a woman's movement and the achievement of some greater measure of gender equality so that uh you know every every social context where males and females come together and that's just about every context there is um you know that that, that those contexts are are just changed and the kinds of behaviors that were standard in prior generations, I think, and essentially one, two generations have been dramatically changed. And what it does is it it casts a light on uh, what males are bringing to those relationships, those relations. Um, you know, one of the sobering statistics for me in the research I did for my book was uh, on college campuses, the finding that, you know, if if uh, college-age males believed that they wouldn't be uh, uh, caught or get in trouble, 40% said that they would force a woman to have sex. You know, what does that actually mean? Think about that for a moment. What does it actually mean about how that young man conceives of who he is and what he really needs, what's going to lift him up, what's going to give him joy. Uh, obviously, he's not thinking in that, in that way about connection, is he? He's not thinking about love or intimacy or the, the joy of, of uh, you know, uh, finding another person's heart and wrapping his heart around it. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about, you know, something as simple as, as, as reductive as a single moment's, uh, you know, uh, release. Mm-hmm. And that's desperation and blindness and myopia. And, uh, you know, 40% of college-age males a few years ago in that study. So <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, this casting of a light on what we males bring to this new moment in history is sobering. It's anxiety arousing for parents of... of, of uh, boys. I think that, uh, Nikki, you probably read in my book, the, the finding that for the first time in, in the surveys, uh, history, parents of, you know, expecting parents prefer would prefer to have a girl than a boy yeah, because they feel that raising boys is just much dicier, much mm-hmm. more uncertain. Um, and, uh, you know, I think part of that is a reflection of the fact that lots of parents simply don't know what to do. You know, we've inherited these these uh, uh, confusing, confusing stereotypes and archetypes, and yet we, uh, you know, we 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 don't particularly like the results that we see in practice all around us, both in our own lives and you know, in our in our experiences and and what we read in the headlines. You know, how many people. Uh, heard uh, Christina Blasey Ford testify at the uh, 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 Senate Judiciary Committee about the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. You know, and and irregardless of what we thought about, you know, Brett Kavanaugh, what she described, everyone sort of agreed, probably happened. Mm -hmm. And what she was describing was probably recognizable to most every guy. Yeah. You know, in a very sobering way you know that that kind of performative masculinity that really has not for the sake of the girls at all it's really what we guys do in front of each other to show that we're cool or that we're you know one of the guys or that we're you know uh we're with it we're with the program and uh so anyway i guess what i'm trying to say is that um i think that it's it's uh all these historic changes that have put new light on on um Masculine norms that exist in the culture and that get perpetuated one generation to the next. The good news, I would say, is that boys themselves, I think, recognize that these norms no longer work reliably mm-hmm. and things are changing. Things are changing everywhere. And uh, um, I think that uh, what I find at this boys' school when I run this emotional literacy program, for example, is not a, a an artifact of some, you know, tremendous and rare wisdom that I exercise there. It really is basically who boys are and how ready they are for something different, something better. And I think, I've, I think that's probably true everywhere.
3: Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that's definitely our experience here. Um, I'm honestly still kind of blown away at the statistic you shared, which is the 40%. Um, I think it's having an impact on me, particularly because in a in a way, it spoke true for me that that same driver, which was that my uh, – I think my own impulse to engage intimately with women um, at, at a younger stage in my life was so much driven on what I felt like I was expected to do yeah. as a male. And I feel, even in my body now, quite a bit of shame and embarrassment around – how many times I moved a relationship from a happy, you know, uh, where I would say a a healthy and happy kind of friendship into, into a sexual space primarily because I thought that I was expected to do that. And if I didn't, yeah. I had done something wrong, that I was failing my, my, my gender of sorts. Um, but that statistic still blows my mind. I mean, that's, um, I think, indicative of, of, of much more than just the, uh, the instance that they're talking about but it certainly reveals a lot about what's going on to create that condition in the first place.
0: Yeah that's really the point I think that I'm making is that you know we, we, we I think there's a lot of hand-wringing and consternation uh, on the part of um, women, mothers, uh, girls sort of thinking about uh, you know relating to boys um, in the face of those kinds of observed behaviors and uh, to the point where i think uh, you know there's a there's a question sort of hanging in the air an unspoken question about is this somehow what male nature is like is this just sort of somehow hardwired by testosterone or something in in how boys are inclined to behave that they truly are sexual predators that's just uh, you know they're natural selection process at work. And the truth is that, you know, uh, I, I marry that statistic, the 40%, uh, with that earlier statistic I cited about uh, how many males regret, feel regret after a hookup, the emptiness of it, the uh, the way that they felt, as you were describing, sort of forced into a a role performance that really had very little to do with themselves and their hearts. So I guess, you know, where do these things come from? They come from the boyhoods that we've created, that we maintain, that are a way of perpetuating, reproducing, generation to generation, a certain kind of male, uh, uh, irregardless of whether it's good for the males themselves, and that's really the I think the calling that we have today is to disrupt that intergenerational transmission and and enable uh, uh everyone who cares about boys to follow boys' lead their their the lead of their human natures to reinvent a boyhood that uh not only produces fewer casualties but damages the society less. Mm-hmm.
4: Michael, it's uh, it's Orion here. I wanted to speak really quickly um, and echo how Nikki felt about the, that statistic, and uh, go back to. It reminded me when you were talking about relational teaching, um, and how uh, to me that was not my experience in school. How it felt very outcome oriented, um, but it was also the same feeling I had in those intimate moments with um, with women where. It, it felt like there was this, you talked about in one of your articles, where there is this hierarchy that emerges and you're trying to please those around you. And instead of, instead of going into it with connection, it was going into it looking for this kind of external validation or internal validation, really, um, to belong. Um, and so that really, uh, that just really resonated with me, the kind of the connection aspect, the relational aspect that it almost it both was present for me in school, but also entered into my, like most of my relationships with those around me. Uh, You
0: know, the, the, um, the, the research on uh, Patrick, you asked a question about how we can help boys escape the uh, man box, the narrow restrictive code of masculinity. And the research is pretty clear and and it's th- th- this is really relevant. Uh, the research is very relevant to mentoring programs and parenting. That that uh, what it takes to embolden a boy and enable him to hold on to himself uh, and and hold on to his core values. What it takes is a relationship with an ally, someone who believes in him and who lets him be himself. And basically gives him the message that who he is who he wants to be actually matters that being male is not just about submitting to the inevitable domination of this masculine code but it really can be about getting to be yourself
1: yes this is patrick here again yeah you you the term you used that i that resonated with me was performative masculinity um, maybe another term for that would be locker room talk. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, it, it reminds me of I, I, a segment in your book. That you res- you referenced some research. Uh, I think it was the Judy Chu study about when boys don't have that male ally um, through their father or through a teacher or a mentor. You know, uh, they can develop that sense of masculinity from their friend groups and their peers and in my experience that's how a lot of these um, dangerous precedents get set and it sort of creates this atmosphere where you feel like you have to perform um, and you feel like you have to one-up your friends and um...
0: yeah you know I'm um, uh, a colleague at Penn Uh, a psychologist uh, who specializes in uh, understanding and studying uh, black and Latino males, male development, he uh, has found uh, with respect to black and Latino boys that because of the force of racism and the mythology that it creates about who they are uh, black and Latino boys, they uh, are vulnerable to, be, to hyper-masculinity. So hyper-vulnerability produces hyper-masculinity. And I, I think that, uh, you know, while that is particularly relevant to uh, boys who are sort of, you know, in the crosshairs of a triple whammy of uh, race, class, and gender oppression... I think that the notion of uh, vulnerable boys um, uh, finding some measure of security or protection or shielding behind a mask of uh, conventional masculinity, even if it means that they uh, hide who they are, even to the point of forgetting who they are, I think it's really relevant. So, you know, what what an ally can do, and that ally can be a mom, a sister, a girlfriend, a brother. It can be male or female. You know, what that ally does is simply uh, validates that boy's uh, sense of who he is and basically communicates to him that you're important. You matter in this equation. Life as a male is not just about sucking it up. And, uh, pretending to be something you're not, you know, you don't just have to pass for, you know, a conventional guy, you know, there's lots and lots of room for you to be yourself. In fact, that's, that's who we really want to show up here in life is who you really are. Hmm.
3: Thank you for that. Hey, the, the poll quote for me in that is, is simply hyper-vulnerability produces hyper-masculinity and, um. You know, as a white male, I I feel like the topic of, of race and ethnicity is a delicate one to, to hold in our circles. And, and yet, um, it's, you know, it's been apparent to me that uh, a large number, I, I should say a disproportionately large number of um, boys and young men who end up participating in our mentoring circles are boys of color. And um, in some capacity, I, I wonder if there's a link with what you shared, which is that you know, masculinity, despite it being a, a mask, as we've named, is an identity that is socially acceptable for them. It's something that they do get to rest behind, even if it's not their authentic self. It's something. And um, yeah, that's just that's sitting with me now. I'm, I'm going to be holding that kind of theme and question for a while.
0: Yeah, and I'll just add this. And, 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 and I only have a few minutes more, but I want to make this point, uh, Nikki, because I think it's really important. Um, you know, there was a study done in in Florida, a million uh, teenagers, fifty uh, percent male, fifty percent female, uh, siblings in families, uh, uh, raised in disadvantaged contexts poverty and race. And what the study looked at was um, uh, how do these disadvantaged contexts affect boys? versus girls, and what they found was that the the stress of poverty, racism, uh, produced worse outcomes for boys than for girls, Um, and what the authors of that study explained was it wasn't so much that things were different for the boy and the girl in the family, it was that the neighborhoods surrounding those families were more, quote, adverse boys than girls. And of course, what the adversity was, was all of this uh, uh, hyper-masculine behavior that they were both subjected to and expected themselves to perform. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't perform it, they were policed in harsh ways. You know, the, the, what, we, what we know about bullying, for example, in schools is that boys experience both more bullying and more physical bullying, More, more physically threatening bullying. So, you know, you either perform it, you put on the mask, or you get policed. And uh, it, like I said, it, it sort of hangs in the air.
3: Thank you, Michael. Um, Max just uh, raised his hand with something to share. I know we're getting close to the end of our time, so uh, maybe after his comment or question, we'll, we'll come to a close. Um, Sounds hey, Michael, good.
2: Yeah, it's Max here. Um, and this is really interesting for me, like being at school myself, just um, yeah. like thinking about where these, um, these ideas of masculinity and what it means to be a man like growing up, where they come from. And obviously, like the media is a pretty obvious answer. But um, something really interesting that I've been thinking about a lot lately is that it's not always... I find it, at least in my school setting, that the majority of the time, these ideas about what it means to be a man oftentimes come from the females at my school who expect us, um, as guys at school to portray these traits that are commonly associated with masculinity um, and kind of expect that we're um, fundamentally like going to do something wrong or do something to offend them. And it's just really interesting seeing how a lot of the times it doesn't even come from other guys pressuring you into, um, into doing certain things or showing up in a certain way. Um, Really interesting just in, in the age that I'm at least um, at school in is just something really interesting that I've noticed.
0: Yeah, Max, I, I appreciate you saying that. And it's a hard, this is a hard subject to talk about, as you can imagine. Um, but, you know, the reason I talk about boyhood, as opposed to uh, boys or the characteristics of boys themselves, uh, is for this reason. You know, boys didn't design boyhood and boyhood was not designed with boys human needs in mind you know who designed boyhood who runs boyhood uh and and the truth is that it's everybody it's men fathers women mothers brothers sisters we all participate in creating and maintaining an image of of who boys are and what they need um you know, we deprive them of certain things that they need, and we require them to perform in ways that are, that are not not good for them, and uh, we all participate in that, and we all need to take responsibility for the institution of boyhood, and allow boys themselves to kind of come out in the open, and talk more more honestly about what they need, and design a boyhood that that fits that that uh, that need assessment. So. You know the hard aspect of this to talk about, for example, with, you know, with regard to mothers is, you know, that mothers, as, as anxious as they are, that their boys be compassionate and virtuous men, uh, you know, empathic men, actually participate in some of the features of boyhood that, that uh, unwittingly reproduce generation to generation, the, the very things that they're, they're hoping to avoid.
3: Yeah, that old quote, what you resist persists, comes up for me. And I think that was a big theme that I took out of, uh, you know, reading bell hooks and and some other feminist authors, which was, you know, that challenge and perhaps paradox a lot of mothers face in doing their absolute best to, you know, maybe suppress or or not pass down those aspects of, you know, patriarchy or or just wounded masculinity and end up doing so in, in their attempt to shy away from it um yeah michael i know we uh we're approaching the end of our our scheduled time and uh, i'll just name the um the the interest that i feel um and i know we don't have time to cover it today but just in in addressing technology and video games and I i know you have segments in your book that that discuss it very well so uh, I know that's a, a key question for many of our listeners, for many of the parents that I'm talking to these days, um, and even for the boys themselves. I'm, I'm grateful that there's a growing awareness of the need to um, address the elephant in the room, which is uh, technology addiction and, and especially video games. Um, so for anyone who's interested, I, I just want to encourage uh, our listeners to go and grab a copy of Michael's book, How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men, it's available um, for pre-order on Amazon now. And I believe the release date is in April. Is that correct, Michael? That's,
0: that's right, the 16th.
3: April 16th, beautiful. Um, and I'll just name too an openness and a, a definite um, willingness to to drop in again on another, on another program in the future because clearly you have a ton of very valuable experience and, and wisdom to transfer over. And our time with you today has been very fruitful for me and I imagine for our listeners as well.
0: Thank you all. Thanks for having me. And I enjoyed the conversation a lot. And uh, Max, appreciate in particular you as a young male speaking about your experience at the end there. Thank you. Thank you all. You've been listening to Right Ways Radio, hosted by Journeymen. Thanks again for joining us.
3: If you like what you heard, subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher Radio. And remember to leave us your feedback and please give us a rating. Find us online at www.journeymen.us.